Oh my goodness, you crazy son of a bitch. Do you have any idea what you've just done? You've just discovered the Marks and Lestrap Show Podcast Hour. This is the show that may or may not be an hour long based on your perception of time and how much I've got to say. So strap yourselves in and prepare your ears for the journey of a lifetime with your host of the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour, me, you idiot. What's up, everybody? Martin here. Episode 19 of the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour. And uh, I'm sitting here uh, alone in front of the microphone. It is Sunday afternoon. Or quite not quite afternoon. It's about 1130 in the morning, but uh, it's practically afternoon. And uh, Chanel is not around. Don't have any guests with me today. I do have a slew of wonderful guests coming up in the next couple of episodes. I look very much forward to, to having conversations with the with my upcoming guests. Uh, I'll be talking to uh, a screenwriter. I'll be talking to a professional wrestler. I'll be talking to a Bram Stoker award-winning uh, anthologist. And I'll be talking to a whole bunch of other great folks. But in the meantime, as of 11.29 in the a.m. on Sunday, June 8th, it's just me hanging out in front of a microphone. And so long as it's here, uh, so long as I'm here, so long as it's uh, just you and I, you know, the two of us, having a nice, quiet, intimate conversation... It occurs to me that this might be an appropriate time to talk about life. I know what you're probably thinking. Life is a pretty big subject, Martin. We can't reasonably have a substantive, robust conversation about life during one episode of your podcast. And you know what? You're right but I can at least tell you a story. So the thing about life is, well, what, what? There's a saying, right? An idiom, I guess we could call it. Everything happens for a reason. You heard that one? Of course you have. If I've heard it, certainly you've heard it. I've heard it all my life. Everything happens for a reason. And, uh, you know, when somebody says everything happens for a reason... Uh, generally speaking, I imagine that there's certain spiritual undertones beneath it. A certain idea that there's uh, some some larger presence at work, and uh, we're all chess pieces, and you know, and and life is just one big chessboard, and whatever happens to us was intended to happen, because you know that was uh, those were the moves made by by some some greater power bigger than us course if it is a chess game I guess there would be two great powers playing some large spiritual chess game with our lives it's kind of fucked up I guess when you think about it or at least when I think about it but it's really not fucked up and I'll tell you why that idiom that everything happens for a reason I don't believe in that I don't believe that everything happens for a reason. I just believe that everything happens. 
I believe that, uh, you know, people, you know, people live their lives. They, they walk around, they bump into each other and they make choices and those choices have consequences and those consequences lead to some new reality altering the state of, you know, every individual's life. And then whatever circumstances they find themselves in, they'll make more choices. And those choices will lead to more circumstances. Which will lead to more consequences, which will lead to more, you know, whatever. And it just happens over and over again. 24 hours a day, 350, 350, look at me, I can't do math, 365 days a year. For however long you are lucky enough to be alive. I say lucky. I guess not everybody feels lucky to be alive. I suppose I consider myself lucky that I feel lucky to be alive. How about that? So, no, I don't think everything happens for a reason. But I do think, and, and this isn't, this isn't uh, you know, spiritual in any way whatsoever. It's just, it's just kind of sort of a matter of fact. I do think that whatever, whatever circumstances you find yourself in, whatever you re- whatever your reality looks like right now, right this second, that reality is a result of everything you've ever done in your life up to that point. Every choice you've ever made, every conversation you've ever had, every person you've ever met, every animal you've ever been kind to, every meal you've ever enjoyed, every book you've ever read, every movie you've ever watched, every story you've ever window shopped in. I could go on and on, but you get my point. Everything, literally everything you've ever done in your life has led you to this moment right now. And I suppose for you right now, this moment includes listening to the Martin Lestrap Show podcast hour. So in that case, it's kind of cool. I was I was I was just on the cusp of making a joke, but I realized it's actually kind of cool because here's the thing. The same goes for me, obviously. Every every choice, decision, conversation, movie, book, meal, everything that I've ever done has led me to this moment, sitting in front of a microphone, talking to you. And everything that you've ever done has led you to wherever you happen to be driving in your car, walking on the treadmill, washing dishes. Perhaps you hear me uh, on a stereo. Perhaps you've got earbuds in your ears. I don't know. But wherever you are right now, you are listening to, to this recording. Which means that for our entire lives, you and I, we were on a direct course. A crash course, if you will. And all of our choices combined led our lives to intersect in this way. Me telling a story, and you listening to it. That's pretty fucking cool. And, uh, you know, if if it feels like I'm getting a little uh, Deepak Chopra on you, uh, it's not without reason. Uh, I actually want to tell you a, a very specific story, a story that I, that I haven't told you guys before. And uh, it's... Well, essentially, it's the story of how I, how I became a writer. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, Martin... You already told us the story of how you became a writer. That was episode one. Origin story. 
And you'd be right that the purpose of episode one was to try to sort of recount the events in my life that led me to becoming a writer. That's absolutely true. But there's one really, really, really important, pivotal story that happened along the way when I was 17 years old. And without that specific incident, I wouldn't be a writer. I can say that to you almost unequivocally. Obviously, you know, as life goes, we don't really know what would have happened. We can speculate. We can guess. But we don't really know what would have happened. Maybe I would have become a writer. I don't know. But maybe I would have made a different choice when I was 17. And maybe that different choice would have led me on a different path. Maybe I'd be a comic book artist. Maybe I'd be a, a prison guard. Maybe I'd be a high school teacher. Who knows? That's my point. But all I know is where I ended up, and I know, I know, I know, without question, without any shadow of a doubt, that what happened to me when I was 17 years old is the reason that today I have a writing career. And that's the story I want to tell you about. It started when I was in high school. Uh, specifically, it was, the, it was the summer before my senior year in high school. I was 17 years old. Uh, the year was 1995. And I had just gotten my third part-time job. I wasn't working these jobs concurrently, by the way. It was just the, 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 the third job in my, in my young work history. My first job, if you're curious, I worked at Taco Bell. I was 16 years old. And I was really good at it, by the way. I feel like you should know that about me. In fact, I kind of think I'm being modest. I was pretty outstanding at Taco Bell. And again, it was my first job, so, you know, I, I'm sure there was, a, there was a certain enthusiasm that, uh, that went along with having the job. I'd gotten the job specifically because I wanted to get my driver's license. That's, that was the main reason. And uh, at the time, uh, for pretty much, pretty much the entire time I was in high school, uh, my dad was out of work. It was the early 90s. Uh, America was in a horrible recession. Um, and uh, I, I remember the summer right before I started high school, uh, my dad had gotten laid off from his, uh, from his job. He'd worked there for, uh, God, my, my whole life at least. He'd worked there for 16, 17, 18 years. I don't remember the, the exact time, but, you know, he'd worked there a long time. And I remember very clearly... You know, coming home from school, uh, I was in junior high. I think I—I I don't know if it was the last day of school, but you know, it was something. But I remember coming home and seeing my mom and dad standing in the backyard with the sliding glass door closed, and they were talking. And uh, I knew something was up, partly because it was the middle of the day, and my dad shouldn't have been home in the middle of the day because he, you know, he had a job. So the fact that he was home on a weekday was sort of weird. And that he and my mom were in the backyard talking felt like something was up. Uh, they were clearly talking about something very serious. I remember that. Uh, my mom was probably crying. I'm honestly just playing the, playing the odds on that one. If you know my mom, she's, uh, 
she cries pretty easily. She wouldn't make she she's she's very emotional. She's very connected to her her, her emotions, which is great. Because it also means that she laughs easily too, which is great. I'm gonna have her on the show one of these days. I don't know if I mentioned that to you. She and I, we, I've talked to her about it before. She's looking forward to it. She's hilarious. You're gonna love her. But in the meantime, so I remember they were in the backyard and they were having a, a very serious conversation, and I don't remember if they maybe they saw me like looking at them talk and maybe they maybe they invited me to the backyard. I don't remember the specifics. That that part's actually kind of blurry, but. I do remember them telling me that that uh, that my dad had been laid off. He 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 lost his job, and uh, I don't remember all the details. I don't remember how much of I don't remember how much of that they impressed on me in terms of you know the 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 magnitude of of what that meant. But I don't think they had to. I think I was old enough to to understand that this was really serious and pretty scary. Because I mean, we had no income coming to our house. My dad worked. My mom was, you know, she was she was the she was the homemaker. She she stayed home. She 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 raised us, and you know, she took care of the house. So she didn't have an income. My dad's income was all we had, and so uh, so now that he was out of work, I understood that this was a big deal, and I remember being really greatly affected by it. And I remember being really scared because I didn't know what was going to happen. Were we going to be homeless? Were we going to be, you know, begging for food and money? I really didn't know. I remember our first shopping trip. I don't know if it was that night or maybe a couple nights later. We were shopping at uh, Price Club for groceries. I don't know that Price Club exists anymore. I think Price Club became Costco, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, before it was Costco, it was Price Club. Big warehouse store, whatever. Whatever, you know, even if they're not connected, big warehouse store. And we were shopping for groceries at, uh, at Price Club and... And I remember my dad made a comment to me, and I don't know if he was making a joke or, again, if it was maybe his way of trying to, you know, uh, impress the gravity of, of our of our current situation. But he said, what we spend is what we got. Those were his, his exact words. And I know those, those were his exact words because I'll never forget them. What we spend is what we got. And of course, what he was telling me was, whatever money we spent on groceries that day, that money wasn't coming back. There was no income. We would be down money. And, and you know, and, and of course I could extrapolate that. Meaning, you know, that the next time we shopped for groceries, we would be down more money. And the next time they paid bills, paid the house note, paid the, the made the car payment got gas, school clothes, anything, that money wasn't coming back. And that was terrifying. And uh, and that experience left an indelible impression on me to this day. To this very day, uh, it's uh, it's affected my whole worldview, specifically where it concerns money and work. yeah, you know, if if you ask my mom, she'll tell you that uh, that I'm great with money, that I'm the most responsible person she knows with money. Uh, I have, you know, uh, <laughs> what do I have? A great credit credit score, probably. I don't know whatever whatever that is. Um, I have little to no debt. I do little to no shopping. 
almost ever. I honestly can't remember the last time I bought something significant. I spend money, obviously. I, I, I pay bills and I live day to day, but, you know. and I mean, day to day in the sense that money kind of gets spent. You buy groceries, you buy food, you put gas in the car, but... Uh, the way that I, the way that I see money, handle money, treat money, I think honestly, uh, goes back to that shopping trip with my dad. And when he said, what we spend is what we got. And that stuck with me. And I remember for years after that, I felt a really strong responsibility to help my family out. But how do I help them out? I'm, I'm a kid. I, I can't, I can't get a job. I can't work. I can't earn money. How can I possibly help my, my family out? So the only way that I knew that I could help my family was by not giving them a reason to spend money. As long as they weren't spending money on me, then I couldn't, I couldn't take money away from our, what we had, our, our, our family treasure, whatever was left over, you know, uh, and so I have very, very specific, clear memories of being hungry, so hungry. And uh, my parents were going out to get food for the family. They were going to go wherever they were going to go to McDonald's, for example, go to McDonald's, uh, grab some dinner for the family. We had money to do it. They weren't going to let us starve. You should know that about my parents. Before I go any further with this story, please let me make this point perfectly clear because I want there to be no confusion. Uh, my parents made as many sacrifices that they had to do. They made as many sacrifices as, as they had to possibly make to make sure that uh, to make sure that we were all right. Uh, to make sure that we to make sure we had food and clothes and shelter. And, you know, I, I mean, I know that there was times when they almost lost the house, and I honestly, I don't even know all the details of how they, they pulled off the magic trick of not losing it, but they didn't. Uh, I remember one morning uh, a man came over to repossess our car, and uh, my mom, through whatever, through, through whatever, you know, magic she has with her gift of gab, Somehow, like uh, like David Copperfield, but, you know, in a verbal sense, I suppose, somehow convinced this man whose job it was to take our car away not to repossess our car. So, you know, my, my parents did everything they could. And, and for, for the years that my dad was out of work, you know, things were tight. And uh, I, you know, I know we... I know I didn't have a lot of the same, you know, things that my, that my friends had. In fact, I even have very, I, I remember being very jealous and bitter of my friends because, you know, uh, their, their dads had jobs and there was no threat of them, you know, being out of work seemingly. And there was no, there was never any, you know, I, I didn't imagine that they had the same conversation that I had with my dad where they, where their dad told them, you know, what we spend is what we got, you know. But anyway, I, I can remember, you know, I wanted to do my part to help out, and I can remember being really hungry, and my, my parents were going to go out to McDonald's to get some food, and they would ask me, what did, what, you know, what did I want? And I told them I was fine, I'm not hungry. And, they, you know, they say, you sure? We're, we're going to, you know, we're going to 
you know, we're getting dinner for everybody. And, you know, I'm fucking starving and McDonald's sounded delicious. But I didn't want to be a burden and I didn't want to take away from, you know, what we had left. So I'd, I'd say I was fine, you know. And, you know, I would do that as often as I could. Obviously, I didn't starve myself. I would eat when, you know, when necessary. But, but you know, every now and again, if I, if I felt like it was going to help out, I would, I would do without. Because I thought that that was my part of helping the family. So anyway, when I was 16 years old and I wanted to get a driver's license and uh, my friends were getting driver's licenses and, and they were going to, to driver's ed and taking classes and doing the driving school and they were doing the whole thing. And so, of course, you know, what what 16-year-old uh, American doesn't want to have a driver's license and get behind the wheel of a car and feel the, feel the amazing freedom that comes with, you know, uh, having that ability to, to move and travel and, and the sort of, you know, uh, be the master of your own journey, so to speak. But we didn't have money. Uh, not only didn't we have money to to send me to driving school, we didn't have money for car insurance. And so, I, and so, my mom that was that was that was a, she was a stickler to that point that uh, she absolutely would not let me get a driver's license if I didn't have uh, car insurance. And I remember being in school and talking to some of my different friends, and they were like, "No, you can get your driver's license without insurance." And so I was like, "Oh," so I told my mom like maybe she didn't. No, and, uh, and yeah, but if her point was it doesn't matter. If you can get a license without insurance, you are not having a license without insurance, and we can't afford to pay for your insurance, ergo, you are not going to get a driver's license. And then she said, if you can pay for the insurance, then sure. Now, I'm relatively positive for her that was the end of the discussion. I think, that, I think for her that was checkmate. If you can pay for the insurance, then you can then you can get a license, which you know which which to her meant I'm not going to get I'm not going to get a license because how in the hell am I going to pay for insurance? What I heard was a compromise that I could get a license if in fact I could pay for it, and so all that meant is I had to get a job, and I was more than happy to get a job, and so I got my first job at Taco Bell. My brother actually, my brother's friend helped me get the job. He was working there at the time, and he knew that I wanted a job and that I'd put in. So I put application in at Taco Bell. So I think it was like a Saturday afternoon. He called me up, and he said, uh, he said, hey, they're doing interviews today. You should call up and just, you know, just, just ask about, you know, a, a, a job. Don't tell them that, you know, they're, they're, they're doing interviews. They'll probably invite you. So that's what I did. I called up, and I was like, hey, I put in an application. I was just, you know, curious to see you know, if you guys are hiring right now. And they said, oh, you know, we're doing interviews if you want to come down. So I went down. One of my cousins happened to be visiting, so he gave me a ride down to Taco Bell, and uh, I interviewed, and they, they called me back a few days later and offered me a job. And just like that, I now had a job at Taco Bell. And uh, soon after my job at Taco Bell, uh, when I got my first paycheck, oh, by the way, this was 1994. Minimum wage was $4.25 an hour. And that just, I, that just seemed like so much money to me. I could not imagine that every hour I spent at Taco Bell, they were going to pay me $4.25. And I remember my first shift. It was a three-hour shift on a Friday afternoon. And, I, and I, I, I did the math in my head, and I was like, oh, my God, that's, that's like $12.75. That's like $13. 
I'm going to work for three hours and I'm going to have $13 in my pocket. It blew my fucking mind. I couldn't imagine having that much money. I was thinking of all the amazing things I could do with $13. So uh, so soon after I got my first paycheck, my dad took me down to our uh, our local bank. It was a great western. I they're, they're, they're not around anymore. They're defunct. Uh... I don't know if they were one of the casualties in the in the 2008 uh, banking collapse, but uh, either way, they don't exist anymore. But I uh, got my first bank account. Uh, it was a savings account. I put my check in there, and then you know, I could see I, I saw this money, and it was just it was the most wonderful feeling in the world to to have you know gotten a job, earned a wage, put money in, into an account, and every time I got paid, you know, my dad would take me to the bank. And I would drop off the money, and it just felt great. I think partly because I was no longer uh, uh, I was no longer a liability of sorts. At least that's the way it, it kind of felt. That I was now, you know, I was making my own way. I, I wasn't paying rent, obviously, and I wasn't you know paying for groceries or anything like that. But I could now do little things for myself that either my parents couldn't afford, or if they could afford it, it was you know it was difficult for them to afford. I also remember what I bought with my first paycheck, if you're curious. Uh, I bought uh, the very, very, very first thing I bought was, uh, was the, the, count, the, the Counting Crows first, first album. I bought that on CD. I forget the name of it, but it's the one that's got the, the single Mr. Jones. Mr. Jones used to play a lot in Taco Bell, and I dug it. Couldn't kind of think of it, it might have been subliminal that this song played in Taco Bell. And then eventually that'd be the first thing that I bought. I still love it, it's a great song. Anyway, the second thing I bought was uh, an extra value meal at McDonald's. It was a Big Mac value meal. Could be a coincidence, considering what I told you earlier. I don't know. Uh, and it, I bought the that particular value meal. I was with my family uh, and some some visiting cousins, and we were on our way to go visit the the Museum of Tolerance, which is a uh, which is a, a an exhibit in in Los Angeles uh, that sort of covers the theme of you know uh, you know racial and uh, ethnic tolerance and talks about you know the, the the Holocaust and Anne Frank and the Los Angeles riots I believe and so I uh, bought the Counting Crows bought my Big Mac extra value meal and at the Museum of Tolerance I bought my own ticket to get into the museum. I remember I remember it was so important for me, especially first of all it was important for me to buy my own meal. And um and you know my parents were going to pay and I, I you know I I'm sure I just kind of waved them off and I was like I I got it. Don't you or you guys get your food. You take care of you. I got Martin. And then even at the Museum of Tolerance, you know, they were going to buy my ticket cuz that's that's what they did when we did stuff as a family. They they pay for the kids. And I was like, "No, no, 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 no." I got this. Don't you worry. In my mind, it was like a $7 ticket. I really don't remember what it was, though. It could have been $2 for all I know, but whatever it is. And that and so that was a big deal to me. That was, that was really important that I did that. So I worked at Taco Bell for eight or nine months. You know, I, I, eventually, you know, I, I did driving school, and I paid for it, and I did my driver's, uh, my, my on-the-road training. I forget what it's called, the, the behind-the-wheel training for three days, and I paid for that. Uh, eventually got my driver's license, got insurance, and I made and I made my insurance payments 
every month or whatever it was. And, uh, and, you know, and then, and then that was great. It kind of set me on a path of, you know, uh, understanding and appreciating, you know, the value of a, of a hard day's work and, and earning a dollar, something that still, you know, uh, affects me to this day in a very positive way, I should mention. My second job, ironically enough, and I won't go into detail on this one because there's nothing important to say about it. My second job was at Del Taco. And uh, I actually got a 25 cent, uh, 25 cents more. I got paid $4.50 an hour. And I think that was in large part due to my, my, uh, my experience as a, as a Taco Bell employee. One of these days, I'll tell you more about Taco Bell because there's actually some. Uh, I think there's some stories worth telling about that, but but this isn't the episode for that. So I worked at Del Taco for uh, just a few months, nothing crazy, and then uh, uh, I eventually quit that job. And then I was out of work for a couple of months. And you know, when I say out of work, it's not like I was a grown up trying to pay rent. I was still in high school, you know. But there was a few months when uh, when I didn't have a job. And so during this time while I was out of work, I remember talking to a, a, a buddy of mine and he worked at Thrifty's and he was an ice cream scooper. And uh, and that just seemed like not only, not only did that seem like the best job to me, it's being an ice cream scooper at Thrifty's felt important somehow. I, I, I can't even explain it. There was something. I don't know, there's something regal about it. It was almost like this really important, like, white-collar job. Like, I imagine, I don't, like, the the way that you might imagine somebody putting on a suit and getting a briefcase and going into an office and making important phone calls all day. Like, whatever, whatever that feels like in your mind, those were all the same feelings I attached to being an ice cream scooper at Thrifty's. I have no idea why I made those connections, but I did. So it was, like, really impressive to me that he had this job as an ice cream scooper at Thrifty's. And I forget how long he was there, but I, I, I know that he eventually got fired. And, uh, and I know this because he, he, he told me uh, this, this story, this very scary story. Well, I say scary. It might not scare you at all, but as a teenager, this, this story kind of affected me, right? Uh, basically, he told me that he'd, uh, I guess he'd been stealing from them. I don't know exactly what he was stealing those details I don't remember whatsoever, but uh, he was. You know, he told me that uh, his last day there, he was in the uh, the freezer, the inventory with all the ice cream and the 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 ice cream and the ice cream sandwiches and the popsicles and you know all the all the frozen dessert goodies that Thrifties had to keep frozen. He was in there, and while he was in there, uh, a couple of gentlemen in white collared shirts and black ties showed up, and. Uh, and they asked for him, and so he he followed them out of the freezer, and they led him up uh, into a in, in, into a back room up upstairs into a back room that he didn't even know existed in Thrifty's until he got up there. And when when he got up the stairs, it was like this this big empty room, not even a room so much as just this large empty space. And the only thing that was there was a was an empty table and two chairs. And so he sat down in one of the chairs, and one of the the gentleman in the white collar and black tie sat down in the other chair, and then the other guy just stood up behind him, and uh, they proceeded to interrogate him for I don't know several hours, I suppose, until until they 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 got him to say whatever it was that uh, they wanted him to say, admitting to stealing whatever it was he'd stolen, and I really don't remember what he'd stolen. It could have been 
money. It could have been candy. It could have been ice cream. I honestly don't remember. But whatever it was, like it was serious enough, and Thrifties took it seriously enough that you know he ended up in a in a room alone with these guys interrogated, and soon thereafter, you know, he lost his job. Uh, but before he lost his job, he had gotten another friend of mine a job there, and so. So I had these two friends that worked there, but now one of them didn't work there. And that meant there was a job opening. So my other friend who worked there let me know that uh, there was a job opening and that uh, I could put in an application and he could, you know, put in a word for him, for me and, you know, we could maybe uh, get me into this job at Thrifty's. And so that's uh, that's exactly what happened. Uh, is is uh, Before I knew it, I was now, you know, wearing a suit and carrying a briefcase and going to a fancy office. Except I didn't have a fancy suit and I didn't carry a briefcase and I didn't go to a fancy office. I went behind the ice cream counter at Thrifty's and I scooped ice cream for people. But I, you know, I thought I'd made it. I was 17 years old. It was it was the summer before my senior year in high school. Uh, I had a driver's license. I was scooping ice cream. Everything was right in the world. And so I remember my uh, my buddy who got me the job there, he, I remember him telling me that one of the great benefits of this job is like when you took breaks, you could you could get snacks. You could, you know, you can grab snacks from uh, from the aisle and enjoy them on your break. And I was like, this is this is got this is the greatest thing I've ever heard. So not only do I do I have the 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 amazing honor and esteem of scooping ice cream at Thrifty's, but then I also just get free snacks because I worked there. I couldn't believe it. So um, I think it was my first day there, and uh, he was he was kind of training me. And uh, I'm pretty sure we took a break at the same time because they weren't you know they weren't going to leave me behind the counter. It was my first day. What did I know about scooping ice cream? That takes time. That takes time and skill and training to learn how to scoop ice cream efficiently and effectively. So we took a break, and uh, so I asked him about uh, this 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 free snack policy. He's like, oh, it's great. It's easy. So here's what you do. Uh, you just, you know, go through the aisle, find, just get, get, get what you want, bag of potato chips, bottle of Snapple, what have you. And, uh, but don't let anybody see you get them. And then maybe kind of put them in your ape and tuck them away. So, so nobody sees them. And then you want to sneak off into the back, go into the, the, the sort of warehouse in the back. There's lots of shelves and walls. So you want to go around and you want to find one where you can sort of crouch down. And if should somebody come in, they won't know that you're in there. So you kind of crouch down and then you'll open up your potato chips and you'll uncork your Snapple. And you'll enjoy your snack, but do it quietly. If you're chewing, you know, be wary that you don't want it to be clear you're, you're eating a snack. And, and if you're drinking, you know, do so as discreetly as you can. And then when you're done... Throw away the evidence. May, you know, maybe put it at the bottom of the trash can. Put something over it. Don't let anybody, you know, see it in there. And then, yeah, and there, and there you have it. And I don't know that I said anything to him out loud, but I remember thinking to myself, that that kind of sounds like stealing. Is that stealing? And again, I don't, I don't think I I said this out loud, but I'm thinking this doesn't sound like a like a benefit of working at Thrifties. This sounds like stealing from Thrifties. But he assured me that this was uh, this was the deal, and he did it all the time, and you know it wasn't a big deal, and and uh, you know, and so one of my one of my later shifts, maybe a couple weeks down the line, when I felt like I was a little bit more comfortable, 
I decided, well, what's the big deal? He seems to do it. I guess this is something that we can do. So I, uh, I, I got a bag of, uh, potato chips. Perhaps they were Doritos. For the sake of this conversation, I'm going to say they're Doritos. Maybe they were Funyuns. I remember liking Funyuns when I was a teenager. They were Funyuns. I'm almost certain of that. Got some Funyuns, and I got a bottle of Snapple. What flavor of Snapple? I don't know. It was probably strawberry was involved. Strawberry kiwi. Is that a Snapple flavor? That sounds like it is. Strawberry kiwi Snapple and a bag of Funyuns. And I snuck them back, and I went into this back room, and I found one of the shelves. I was just far enough away, and I crouched down. And uh, I think I was waiting for the opportune moment to, to open up the bag of Funyuns. And I was, but I was terrified. I was like, this is, this is stealing. And not only is this stealing, I don't know what I'm doing. And there's, there's, I'm just, I'm, I, you know, even though I was hiding, I felt like I was right out in the open and there was no way I was going to get away with this. And even if I got away with this, I'm not even going to, I'm not even gonna enjoying this experience. It's just like, I'm trying to get away with something just for the sake of it. So, um, so I left and I put the, the Funyuns back and I put the Snapple back and then that was it. That was, that, that was it. And it, it, I don't. It wasn't. It wasn't even so much that I'd made some grand moral decision. It wasn't like I, you know, realized that this is the wrong thing to do, and I don't want to do wrong. It was mostly that it was just scary, and I, was, I didn't want to get caught because I could only imagine how scary it would be to get caught. So then I didn't do it, and then that was that. A few more weeks passed, and I was just doing my thing, you know, scooping ice cream. And uh, a, a part of the job at Thrifties was, especially after hours, if you close, then then you know you helped clean up the store and so it was i don't know why it came down on the ice cream scoopers but we we had to do a lot of janitorial work like sweeping the whole store and mopping the mopping was really dumb because uh there was no it was i had no idea how to where to get fresh water there was no clear way to, to there was no <laughs> i don't remember there i don't remember there being like a faucet in the, uh, in the in the cleaning room i just remember a mop bucket full of filthy water and uh, and so I didn't know how to make I don't I don't know how to fill it with clean water so I, I'm I would pretty much like mop with this filthy mop water like every every night that I closed and I don't know if anybody ever changed it it was disgusting I don't know what the point was but um, but I also know you know aside from mopping I would sweep the whole store just one of those big you know those big long push brooms that's what they're called and you know just kind of push you know sweep through the store so I remember doing that one night and I would add a trash can with me and I would drag the trash can along and I would push the broom through the store and I would sweep and you know occasionally once the the dirt and wrappers and trash piled up I would scoop it up and I'd put it in the trash can well while I was scooping or while I was sweeping I should say uh I I came across a, a Laffy Taffy candy bar on the floor it was cherry flavored and it had sprinkles in it and I looked at it and uh, and I started thinking my mind started working the the, the, the mechanisms and the machines and my and my critical thinking processes were were firing up and you know I feel like before I tell you about the Laffy Taffy incident that uh, I, I, I want to tell you about this movie that I saw in 1997 it's called The Rainmaker. It's one of my very favorite movies. Uh, it was, uh, it was uh, written and directed by Francis Ford Coppola, who obviously is uh, famous for directing uh, the, the Godfather and The Godfather Part Two, 
I don't know if he's famous for directing The Godfather Part 3, but he did. Most people give him shit over it. By the way, I'm fine with The Godfather Part 3. I don't hate it nearly as much as the rest of the world does. Based on the novel by John Grisham, it is, is the Rainmaker, by the way. Anybody keeping score. Uh, but I remember in 1997, saw The Rainmaker, loved it. Stars uh, Matt Damon, Danny DeVito, Claire Danes. Uh, if you've never seen The Rainmaker, it's about an idealistic young lawyer and his cynical partner and they, as they take on a powerful law firm representing a corrupt insurance company. It's, that's not the sexiest synopsis in the world. But I'm telling you, it's, it's a wonderful movie, and I really, really loved it. And uh, it might sound random that I bring up the, the, the Rainmaker in the middle of my thrifty story, but it's important, and I'll, and I'll tell you why. It's important specifically because of the last line in the movie. Matt Damon, you know, he's, he's, he's the main character, and throughout the movie he also does voiceover narration. So the last line in the movie is, uh, is Matt Damon, who plays a lawyer, by the way, and, and, and the, voiceover narr- the voiceover narration. And here's what he said. Every lawyer, in every case, crosses a line he didn't mean to cross. It just happens. And if you cross it enough times, it disappears forever. Then you're nothing but a lawyer joke. Just another shark in the dirty water. Well, as I told you, The Rainmaker came out in 1997. And when I was working at Thrifties, this was in 1995. Now, perhaps, if The Rainmaker had come out two years earlier, in 1995, none of the drama that followed the Laffy Taffy incident would have happened. But then again, if none of the drama that followed the Laffy Taffy incident hadn't happened, I wouldn't be sitting here telling you this story. Now, as far as the Laffy Taffy incident goes, I was sweeping the stores after hours. We were closed, pushing the broom, and I said, you know, that in my head, I'm not talking out loud, but I said, if what I'm doing is sweeping, and if the stuff that I'm sweeping on the floor is trash, and if all I'm going to do with this trash and put it in the trash can, and logic dictates that that cherry-flavored, sprinkled Laffy Taffy on the floor is trash. I mean, that's the idea, right? I'm sweeping trash off the floor. That's on the floor. I mean, makes it trash, right? So then uh, because it's trash, then along with the other trash, I should just scoop it up in a dustpan and put it, put it in the trash can. Well, what if, I told myself, instead of throwing it away in the trash can here, what if I threw it away in my apron? And then I finish my shift and I go home and I have the Laffy Taffy in my apron now. But I still intend on throwing it away because it is trash. So I'll throw it away when I get home. But instead of throwing it away into one of the trash cans in my house, what if instead I eat it and let it digest in my belly? Ultimately, the same purpose is going to get served. It was once trash on the floor of Thrifties. I did ultimately dispose of it. I mean, at the end of the day, that's the point. And so I went through this logic in my head and I decided that, yeah, that makes perfectly good sense to me. I didn't put it there. So, you know, whatever, it's hardly my fault. I'm just doing my job. So I put the Laffy Taffy in my apron. And then later that night I went home and I ate it. And if you are wondering, oh, it was fucking delicious. It was fucking delicious. It was the best Laffy Taffy I ever had. 
Now, was was part of the reason it was delicious because it was it was flavored. It was flavored by uh, by the by the spices of of sin. Because it was a because it was sprinkled uh, with the with a little seasoning of of taboo and wrongdoing. I don't know. I have no idea. But it was fucking good. And so then what happened is that the next time I was uh I was I was working and it was a closing shift and I was sweeping. I was on the lookout. I was like I hope that I hope there's more delicious trash on the floor that I can take home with me. But there wasn't. So then I thought, well, what if I accidentally knocked a piece of candy on the floor? I guess I, I, I guess I could put accidentally in air quotes. Imagine me putting air quotes around that word accidentally. What if I accidentally knock some candy onto the floor? Well, it's on the floor now. When it was in its box on the shelf, it was candy, but now it's on the floor and now it's trash and I have a very clear duty to throw trash away. So I put it on my apron and took it home with me. And I crossed that line a few times. And as, uh, as Matt Damon told us in The Rainmaker, if you cross that line enough times, eventually it disappears. And pretty soon, I, uh, I didn't necessarily need the excuse of sweeping it up and making it trash. I just cut out the middleman and I would just put candy in my apron. What's the big deal? And it was easy. Nobody said anything. I never got caught. Nobody appeared to be the wiser. And by nobody, I mean anybody of authority. No managers or assistant managers or anybody who would be, you know, in charge of, uh, of you know, punishing me for what I was doing. And then eventually this led to me, uh, you know, getting creative behind the counter of the ice cream counter. We had this cash register. And it was one of those really old-fashioned, big, heavy cash registers and the keys it was like uh they were like a typewriter and uh and the and the numbers you know they weren't digital they were those they were those spinning wheel numbers and every time you, you pressed a button the numbers would spin and you know uh so big crazy old-fashioned typewriters <laughs> or registers it wasn't a typewriter it was a register and that's an important detail because because it was this old-fashioned uh, uh, register there was no it, it wasn't uh computerized at all it didn't. Uh, it didn't have any sort of computerized record of any transactions made or buttons pushed, necessarily. And so, uh, uh, you know, if you've been to well, thrift, Thrifty's doesn't exist anymore. You know, now it's Rite Aid. But you know, if you go to Rite Aid, they still have Thrifty's ice cream, and they still have the ice cream counter. So it's it's still pretty much the same. So if if you've been to Rite Aid lately or Thrifty's, you know, once upon a time, if you looked at the menu, uh, it wasn't a terribly complicated menu, right? Get one scoop, two scoop three scoops. That was about it. Get on a cone or in a cup. The price didn't really change. And so, you know, once I'd worked there for about a month, month and a half or so, I had seen every combination of, of order, right? So, you know, if, if you order two single scoops, uh, I, I knew what the price was going to be, plus tax. I, I, I knew the math. If you ordered a one scoop and a double scoop, I could do the math. If you ordered three triple scoops, I could do the math. The point that I'm making to you is I no longer needed the cash register to do a transaction. So somebody could come into Thrifty's, and they could order their ice cream. They could tell me what they wanted, and once they finished their order, I could very easily do the math in my head, and then I could tell them what it cost. And then they would give me the money. 
And if they need a change, I could quickly do the, the math in my head and I would give them the appropriate change and then they went off. Now, because I did the math in my head and I did not punch it uh, into, the, into the register, I could open the register you know, to give them change, but I didn't have to punch any numbers to, to make a transaction. There was no record that a transaction was ever made. There was no paper trail. And as far as inventory goes, it was, you know, it was a scoop of ice cream. You know, the thrifties didn't keep track of, you know, how many scoops were sold necessarily. You know, they could look at a bucket in the freezer and they could see that scoops had been scooped out, but that's what's supposed to happen. So now there was this money in my hand and there was no record telling thrifties that they were owed any of this money. So I put that money in my apron. And I wouldn't do that every transaction. What am I, a fucking monster? But, you know, every every couple of transactions, every four or five customers, maybe fewer than that, I don't know, I would, uh, I would do one of my ghost transactions where somebody would order some ice cream. I would do the math in my head. I'd give them a price. They'd give me money. I'd give them their ice cream. I'd put the money in my apron. And nobody was ever the wiser. Sometimes I would, uh, I would recycle the money back in the thrifties. I would take a break. I'd get a, a bag of Funyuns and a, and a strawberry kiwi snapple, and I'd pay for it with money at the register. So thrifties, they did eventually get their money back. And, uh, and I'd go take my break outside in the fresh air where everybody could see me eating my, my, my Funyuns and Snapple. Not a care in the world because, you know, what had I done wrong that they were aware of, right? And so this, 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 this went on for a while, a month, month and a half, two months, I don't know, however long I was there. And it was easy. I eventually reached a point where it didn't even occur to me that I was doing anything wrong. It just became part of my reality working at Thrifties. The line that I had crossed, I crossed it enough times. It, no lo- it was no longer there. Uh, also, uh, about the same time that I got hired at Thrifties, there was another girl that got hired there. Uh, a gal that I that I went to high school with. I didn't know her very well. She was one of those people that, uh, you know, we didn't necessarily run in the same circles, but the circles that we ran in were close enough that we, you know, we we recognized each other. We kind of knew each other. We we'd probably been in a couple of the same classes. You know how you can be in high school. You'll you'll take classes with somebody for years. You'll never meet them or say hi, but you know you kind of know who they are. This was one of those people. But now that we worked at Thrifties, we formally met and knew each other's names and um I got the impression that she was you know interested in me romantically maybe wanted to go out on a date or something and she was nice enough I I wasn't interested but you know I I was I was never mean or dismissive you know we were we were very cool and cordial with one another and so I remember one day I was working in thrifties and I was in the I was in the freezer doing whatever sort of inventory bullshit they they had us do I honest to god I don't remember what we had to do in the freezer I think Sometimes I would just go in there just to hang out because I was bored, I guess. Move boxes around, make it look like I was working. But I was in the freezer, and uh, and so she came in. She just finished her shift, I think. And uh, she wanted to give me her new pager number. She'd just gotten a new pager. And again, this is 1995, so especially if you're, if you're one of my younger listeners, you might have no idea what a pager is. Maybe you've heard about them when you were learning about dinosaurs or something in school. Uh, but a pager, a pager is basically the, uh, the, the, the communication technology that preceded cell phones. And the pager was just this little black box that uh, you generally wore on your, on your belt. 
and somebody could call your pager. There was a there was a there was a phone number attached to it. You could call somebody's pager. They couldn't answer. They couldn't talk on it, but it would it would it would beep. It would page them. Then they would you know they would look at the pager and it would show them the phone number that the call came from. And then they could go find a phone, usually a pay phone, if they weren't if they weren't at home. Pay phones are also sort of obsolete, but they they still exist a little bit. If you go. Like if you're in Las Vegas and you go to like one of those crazy old hotels that nobody stays at anymore, they probably have pay phones. And then, you know, of course, in, uh, in, uh, in 1995, generally the only people who had pagers were, uh, were, were, were cool kids and drug dealers. No one else had pagers. So this girl, she had a pager. She wanted, me, she wanted to give me her pager number so that, uh, so that I might page her one day. So I, I accepted the pager number and bid her adieu. And then, uh, and then that was that. I never had any intention on paging her, and you know, uh, and as it turned out, I never really got the opportunity to. Because a couple of a few days later, uh, I got to work, and I was heading into the back to, to to the freezer, I guess, to do some inventory. I don't know, but as I was heading back, uh, I saw the girl coming out of coming out of the back room, and she was sobbing. She was in tears. It was, it was something very traumatic. It just happened to her behind those doors. And uh, she looked at me, and I looked at her, and she was crying. But she didn't say anything. She just kept walking, and then and then she was gone. And uh, and I was like, well, that was weird. And I think I kind of asked around a little bit. Nobody seemed to know anything. And so I was like, all right, well, I guess that's that, right? And then a few nights after that, I uh, I got to work at Thrifties again. I was working one of my one of my closing shifts. And uh, and when I got there, the uh, the assistant manager who was working that night told me that we had to defrost the the freezers up front so we wouldn't we weren't going to be able to scoop any ice cream so just uh so he sent me to the back just to go do some inventory just uh clean up a little bit move some boxes around basically i just keep you know just keep busy because you know if you're an ice cream scooper and you can't scoop ice cream the fuck else are you gonna do but i figured this is fine whatever i'll just hang out in the freezer for my shift and then then go home and then that'll be the end of it so while I was in the freezer, I was probably only in there for five minutes or so, if that long. And while I was in there, uh, a couple of gentlemen showed up. And uh, they were wearing white collared t-shirts and black ties. And, the, and they were very polite, and they smiled at me, and they, they asked for Martin. And I said, oh, I'm Martin. And, uh, and they acted very pleased to meet me. And uh, they asked if I if I wouldn't mind following them, if they could talk with me for a little bit. So I said sure. And so I left the freezer and uh, and I and and I followed behind them, and they led me to to the back room, and we went up uh, we went up some stairs that I had never actually seen before. And they took me up to a room. Although it wasn't so much a room, it was just sort of this big empty space, and the only thing there was uh, an empty table and two chairs. And this was about the time the light bulb went off, and I realized exactly what was happening. And they sat me down at this table, and one of the gentlemen in the white collar and the black tie, he sat down, and then the, the other gentleman stood beside him. And uh, in my memory of it, there was even a, 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 swinging, a lamp swinging over the table. I'm sure that part wasn't true, but <laughs> that's what it's turned into in my memory of this story. And, uh, and these guys did not beat around the bush. They got right to it. And one of them asked me, 
when's the last time you stole something? And so in my head, I'm thinking, holy shit. These guys are really good at their job. We just sat down and they already know that I steal shit. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not some criminal mastermind. I, I, I don't, I, I'm not going to get away with this. It's very clear to me. So I decide honesty is the best policy. Come clean now. Tell them what they want to hear. Minimize the damage. So when they asked me, when's the last time you stole something? I told them. Yesterday, I said. And they said, what'd you steal? And I told them that I stole some, some black clothes dye. It was stupid. It wasn't even, I didn't even want it. Basically, it's like, you know, if you had black clothes, black t-shirt, black jeans, after you wash them, uh, you know, a, a few times that the black starts to fade. So you can buy this dye and you put it into the washing machine and you wash it with the clothes and you put it with your blacks and, uh, you know, it brings uh, the, the, the nice deep dark black color back into, back into your clothes. So that was the last thing I'd stolen. I'd stolen it the day before, did my little trick where I was sweeping and I knocked it over and pretended like it was trash, put it in my apron. That whole deal. And they said, okay, what else have you stolen? And I was like, uh, candy. I've stolen candy before. And they said, okay, what else have you stolen? And uh, I said, um, ice cream. Sometimes I take ice cream. And so they said, okay, well, do, uh, do us a favor. Write down everything you've stolen from thrifties. So they got me a, a sheet of paper, and they provided me with a, with a pencil. And then they left me around. They, uh, they left me alone. They might have even left the room, actually, just left me in there by myself. Uh, and so I started filling out the list. And again, I'm just thinking, just... Just be honest. So I'm just writing down the stuff that I could that I that I'd stolen. I wrote down you know, the candy and the ice cream. I might have even got specific because I thought maybe that's what they wanted. So it's like I funyuns and strawberry kiwi snapple, uh, uh, ice cream. You know, everything but the money. Even that, I was like, that's that's probably serious. I'm, I won't I won't tell them about the money, but I'll tell them the, the I'll tell them the other stuff. So then uh, they come back 10, 15 minutes later and uh, they ask if I'm done and I tell them that I'm done. And so they, they take the sheet of paper and they look at it and they read the list of everything that I've stolen. And uh, then they look at me and they say, that's not enough. And then they give me another sheet, another sheet of paper and they say, write some more. And then they left the room and I was like, fuck. These guys are good. They knew I was withholding some shit on them. So uh, so I told them some more. Again, I was probably getting specific about like what candy. I probably told them, you know, cherry Laffy Taffy with the sprinkles. And maybe I stole a Twix. I don't know. Maybe some uh, some Skittles. I liked those. And maybe I told them about the, 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 the pints of ice cream I would scoop for myself and put them to the side. And then I would take them home with me after work. And I'd, I'd watch uh, The Late Show with David Letterman and uh, eat my ice cream. About 15, 20 minutes later, you know, they came back and they looked at my list and they said, uh, it's still not long enough. And they gave me another sheet of paper. And then I started writing down some more. And this time they didn't, they didn't leave the room right away. Uh, one of them kind of hung out. And then the other guy 
took a, a VHS cassette out of his bag and he was handing it to the guy and they were having a quiet conversation about, you know, here's this videotape and, you know, it's got stuff on it or whatever. I don't remember their exact words, but I do remember the implication of their conversation was that this videotape had footage of me stealing from thrifties. And I was like, fuck, this is getting fucking serious. They were clearly having the conversation for my benefit, but I was 17 and I was dumb and I didn't know that. You know, they, they wanted to scare me and, they, and it worked. And I remember thinking to myself, I didn't even, I didn't even realize Thrifty's had security cameras. And there was a good reason I didn't realize Thrifty's didn't have security cameras. It's because Thrifty's didn't have security cameras. They lied to me and I was, I was an idiot and I was 17 and I had no reason not to believe them. So I finished my third page and this time I had told them everything. I had emptied out my brain and then I gave them the page and then they looked at it and then they looked at me and they said, it's still not long enough. Keep writing. And they gave me a fourth sheet of paper and they left the room one last time. And I'm sitting there racking my brain because I'm thinking, I don't know what these guys want. I've literally told them everything. Oh, wait a minute. And then I thought of something else. Nothing serious, or at least nothing any more serious than what I'd already written down. But I thought of more stuff. I filled out a fourth page of shit that I'd stolen from thrifties. And they came in and they looked at this fourth sheet and they were getting frustrated with me. And then so then finally, after this fourth sheet, one of them looked at me and said, Okay, Martin, listen, we're going to be straight with you. We know you stole the pager. And, uh, and I looked at them, I imagine I looked at them like they were crazy. And I said, I didn't steal a pager. And they kind of chuckled like, <laughs> Okay, is this the game we're going to play? And they said, Come on. We know you stole the pager. Just tell us you stole the pager and then, you know, we'll be done. And I was like, I, I did not steal the pager. And in fact, I was like racking my brain and I was, I'm thinking, I didn't even realize Thrifties sold electronic goods. I thought they sold like ice cream and candy and batteries and shit. And developed pictures for people once upon a time when that was a thing people did before digital cameras and smartphones. I didn't even realize Thrifties st sold pagers that could be potentially stolen. And so I was adamant. I said, I, I didn't steal a pager. I might have even told them, you know, you have four pages of shit. All that stuff I wrote down, I took all that stuff. But I didn't steal a pager. And we went around and around for a couple of minutes, and I know they were getting frustrated with me. And then finally uh, they left the room again, and I was sitting there alone. And so now I'm just thinking, this is, this feels fucking serious. And I didn't know, you know, I, I didn't know what was going to come of it. I, I was, I was thinking, how serious is this? Are they going to call the police? Am I going to get dragged out of thrifties and handcuffs? Or am I going to get stuffed in the back of a squad car? I'm picturing all of this stuff. Am I going to, am I going to jail? Am I doing prison time? Is there going to be a, is there going to be a court involved? Have I sabotaged the whole rest of my life at the age of 17? Because I stole shit from thrifties. I, I didn't know. I, I truly didn't know the consequences of, of these particular actions. And I was terrified. 
And I don't remember exactly how long I was in there at that point. I know that altogether, before I eventually got out of that room, I was in there for four hours. But at this point, I don't know how long it had been. And when the guys came back, they weren't alone. They brought my dad with them. And uh, I don't know how much they told him. In fact, uh, I think my dad probably thought, well, in fact, I know that my my dad thought there was a misunderstanding. I think my dad thought he was coming to my rescue. He was like, this fucking store and these fucking guys, they don't know my kid. Martin wouldn't do whatever they say that he's done. He's a good kid. He works hard. Got a job when he didn't need one. Pay for his own car insurance. I took him to open up his, his first bank account. We would go to McDonald's and he wouldn't ask for food. He thought we didn't notice, but we knew. I imagine these are all the things going through his head. So he's showing up to the rescue. And they bring him to this empty room where I'm sitting. And the first thing they do is they hand him the four pages that I just written on. This inventory of all the stuff I'd stolen. So I had to sit there and I had to watch my father read these four pages slowly, methodically, item by item, watching his eyes trace the words, feeling the hurt and disappointment as the realization of what I'd done was settling in with him. And then he would turn the page and look at the other list. And, uh, he was quiet, but it was a, it was a fuming silence. It was a terrifying fuming silence. Like I would have preferred for him to yell at me. Like if he had yelled at me, that would have been more, a more comfortable situation. He never laid a hand on me in my whole life, but I would have preferred him to have hit me, punch me in the face, slap me, throw me down the stairs, anything. All of that would have been better than this fuming, tense silence that he and I were sitting in. And there was a crumpled piece of paper on the floor. And he looked at it. And then he looked at me. And then he, and he pointed at that paper. And, you, and he said, you see that piece of paper there? I said, yeah. And he said, you don't take that piece of paper. Do you know why? I was quiet. And he said, because it's not yours. And that was pretty much it. I don't remember anything else he said. I remember I was crying. I remember I was devastated. I remember the, uh, the, the illusion, the mirage of this reality that I'd created for myself had shattered. I remember the, the line that had gone away because I'd crossed it so many times. It came back in big, big bright colors, and I could see it very clearly, and I knew I'd crossed it. And more than anything, I, I, I disappointed my father, you know, one of the two people who are, you know, the most important in the world to me. I never wanted to disappoint my, my parents. 
And so, you know, I was, I was, I was disappointed in myself and I was upset and I was crying and crying both because I was disappointed, crying also because I was terrified because I really didn't know what, what was going to happen. At this point, I wasn't even thinking about the police anymore. I was just thinking about my dad. I really didn't know what was going to follow this, this situation. And then my dad left the room. I, I don't know if they took him out. I don't, I don't know if he had to sign anything. I really don't know because I was a minor, you know. But I remember the two guys in white collared shirts and uh, black ties they they could feel the the tension in the room and they could feel you know the the fuming anger and terror that my dad inspired because once he was gone they started being really nice to me like really nice and i don't think it was part of their job i think they were being really nice because they were like oh fuck dude we didn't know shit was gonna get that real (laughs) and so they were like they literally they literally were like offering me stuff it's like you hungry you know you can we get you something to eat or something to drink and you know, I'm I'm like crying in front of him. I don't care. This whole thing is just scary and messy. And I was like, no, just, ugh, whatever. No, no, thank you. It's fine. And, uh, you know, a little while after that, they they let me go home with my dad. And on the one hand, I was relieved that uh, I hadn't been carried off out of thrifties and handcuffs and stepped into a squad car. But on the other hand, you know, this was this was a this was a whole other scary, <laughs> a whole other scary consequence. And, uh, you know, I remember driving home in the front seat with my dad. He didn't say a word. Silence the whole time we got home, pulled into the garage. And as soon as the car pulled into the garage, my mom came storming out of the house. I don't know if he called her. I don't know if she just sensed something had happened. But she was, you know, angry and screaming at me. And that was a new experience. My, I mean, I, you know, I, it's not that I'd never gotten in trouble or yelled at by my parents before, but, but, uh, oh, hey, Chanel's here. Hold on. Hello. Yeah, on your lunch break? I'm just recording a podcast. Oh. Yeah. It's a good one. Happy can be. I'm not part of it. <laughs> uh, come say hi, just in case I decide to keep this part. Hi, everybody, in case he decides to keep this part. Uh, now, don't give the listeners uh, in any details, but do you happen to remember the, the thrifty story? <laughs> do I? Well, that's uh, that's what this episode's about. I'm telling them all about the thrifty story. Oh, my God, they're coming for you. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. Uh, yeah, we're at, the, we're, we're, we're at a very intense part, so uh, so that's uh, so that's what... This is probably some good, uh, some tension relief for the for the listeners. They're probably really freaked out right now when they need this this nice. little break. Yeah. I'm glad I could help. Yeah. I'm gonna go make a calzone. Make your calzone, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and finish up this story. All right. Can I turn the air on? It's really hot. I'd rather you didn't. Oh my God. All right. <clears throat> uh, Chanel asked if she could turn the air conditioner on because it's warm in the apartment. But when we record, if the air conditioner's on, then, you know, the, the microphone picks that up. So, um, so you know, I prefer not to have it on, which is what I just told her. So, uh, so instead of putting the air conditioner on, um, she started taking her clothes off. So if anybody finds that detail interesting. So anyway, my mom was yelling at me and she was screaming. And this was, again, this was a very new experience. I was not used to that at all. And it was devastating. And, you know, I'm, I'm crying again. And... And, uh, and, you know, cause again, I wasn't, I wasn't a rebellious kid. I was never a rebellious kid. I was never one of these kids who, uh, who got off on upsetting their parents. And there's a, there, there's a lot of teenagers and kids like that. You know who you are. 
you know, when, when, your, when your parents got mad, it made you happy. Maybe it made you feel loved because they were getting giving you some attention. I don't know. But uh, but I was never like that. I, I never wanted to upset them. I never wanted to be rebellious in that way. I always made a point of doing the right thing because, you know, that was always what made the most sense to me to do. So this was all a very new, scary, disappointing experience. Uh, a few days later, I, uh, I, I quit my job at Thrifties. And, you know, it, you might... It, it it might seem like a moot point, but because um, I was, you know, I was all but certain they were going to fire me. In fact, I don't really think there was any question that they that they wouldn't fire me. I knew that that was coming. So I was just thinking about the future and, you know, future potential part-time job opportunities and that uh, if I got fired from thrifties and I was on my on my job record, I'd have to explain that. And I didn't I didn't know all the details or the legalities of what future job you know, future employers could ask about or know, so I figured everything that happened would be, you know, public record. So I figured at the very least, if I quit, then it looks less conspicuous than being fired, and then maybe one day I could get another, you know, shitty part-time job. So uh, so I quit my job at Thrifties, and, uh, and I, but when I quit that same day, I also signed over my last paycheck uh, as, a, as, you know, recompensance to, to cover, you know, all the all the stuff I I'd stolen, and I know I, I I don't know for a fact because we didn't tally anything up, but I know that final paycheck was worth way more than all the candy and ice cream and even the money all of it put together. I know that that paycheck was way more than the stuff that I'd taken, but I was fine, you know I was fine with that. I I was I took comfort knowing that that we were square, thrifties and I, and if they got a few extra dollars out of me, then whatever. I suppose they deserved it. They deserved that more than they deserved me stealing from them. Uh, but then there was still, you know, the next couple of months at home and, you know, uh, dealing with my parents and, you know, dealing with the, their disappointment, their, their disappointment in me and, you know, their, uh, the, you know, hearing them tell me that uh, the trust was gone and, and, you know, you had to earn it back and all that. And, and there was no, there was no instant gratification. It was just, just had to go on with my life day by day and hopefully things would get better and the and, you know things got fine eventually you know the, they warmed up and things kind of sort of felt normal but there was always this it was, it was always in, in the pit of my stomach it kind of sat with me this that what had happened and I never felt good about it I never really got over it and then a whole year passed and I graduated from high school and uh, in the fall of 1996, I, I registered for my first year of college. I was at Chafee College, and during that first semester at Chafee College, I enrolled for English 1A. And my professor for English 1A was S.K. Murphy. Of course, you all, uh, those of you who are loyal listeners and you've heard uh, every episode of this show, then you've heard me talk about S.K. Murphy before and how important she was to my life. And you've also heard me talk to S.K. Murphy in a two-part conversation we had uh, very early on uh, in, in this uh, in this podcast. I believe they were episodes four and five, if you want to go back and listen to them. And so I was in S.K. Murphy's class, and the very first assignment that she'd given us was uh, an autobiographical essay. She wanted us to write an essay where we recounted uh, a significant incident that happened in our life. And I, I didn't really have anything else important in my, in, in my, 
in my mind or in my heart, really, this was this this incident that happened at Thrifty's was like the most significant and dramatic thing that had kind of sort of ever happened to me. So I decided to write about that. And uh, so I wrote an essay and it was it was the most cathartic therapeutic experience that I'd ever had, at least up until that point. And uh, and, it, and it just poured out of me. It was easy, and if it, it was effortless, and it felt good, and it was like all these, all all of this sort of disappointment and shame and hurt feelings, all this stuff that I'd been holding on to, uh, had been exercised onto the page, or I guess technically onto the computer screen. I was typing it, but you know, same point. And I didn't know if it was any good, because I, I was never a good high school student, and I just started college, so there was no reason to believe I was a good college student. But after I had written it, I decided I wanted to show it to my mom. So I, I showed my mom the essay, and she read it in front of me. And it was—it was, it wasn't like I, it wasn't some great magnum opus. It was like two or three pages, but it felt pretty significant to me. So I sat there, and she read the the, the essay. And when she got to the end of it, you know, she was crying, and uh, she gave me a hug. And and that was the first moment that I felt like everything was truly forgiven and forgotten. Even if she, you know, mentally or emotionally moved on, like reading this essay and uh, and and me sort of, you know, trying to trying to, you know, put this this incident into into a certain perspective that I can move forward with, you know, really meant a lot to her, and it meant a lot to me. And then and then yeah, and it felt like it was over, except it wasn't over because this was also my homework. I had to take it to school. So you know, I turned my essay in, and uh, and I was convinced I wasn't going to get a good grade on it mainly because I just I, I assumed that I had done it wrong. And the reason I assumed I had done it wrong is because I enjoyed writing it. And my experience as a student up to that point was homework wasn't ever fun. Homework wasn't a thing to be enjoyed. So if you were enjoying it, you were doing it wrong. So I was just waiting to get my paper back with an F or maybe a D. If I was lucky, maybe I'd get a C or something. And so a week later, and you know, I was in, a, in class with S.K. Murphy, and uh, before she handed the essays back, she said she wanted to read one of them. So she started reading an essay. And, and I recognized the first couple of lines. And then I realized that she was reading my essay to the class. That she enjoyed my essay so much, that it was so good, she, she shared it aloud with the rest of the class as a sample of, you know, what a good college essay sounds like. And that, that changed everything for me. That was if you know if writing the essay was the most cathartic experience of my life uh having sk murphy read the essay to my uh to my classmates was the most profound moment of my entire life because from that day forward i knew that i wanted to be a writer because i'd written this story it was a true story but i'd written this story uh my teacher validated it my classmates were thoroughly entertained by it and so and so I put all the pieces together I loved doing it they enjoyed hearing it and it felt great and I knew I wanted to feel like that for the whole rest of my life and so from that day forward I I I I was on the path I'd become dedicated to the journey of of becoming a writer a professional writer whatever that was I didn't even know what that meant really but I knew that that's what I wanted to do with my life and that was 18 years ago. And, uh, you know, in the years following that incident, I, I you know, uh, I kept writing. I started reading. I, 
I, I continued going to school. I majored in, in English. I met some other great professors along the way. I, I learned and honed my craft. I, I became as good at it as I could possibly get. I eventually wrote a novel called Inside the Outside. That novel would become a number one bestseller on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. It was a number two bestseller in the iTunes bookstore. Uh, the only author in front of me was Stephen King. Uh, the book would go on to win awards, including the grand prize and the Paris Book Festival. And because of the success, because of the success of my my novel and ultimately my writing career, I eventually started this podcast, the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour, the very show you're listening to right this very moment. And so I can say to you, without hyperbole or exaggeration, that the reason you're listening to this show. That the reason that this show exists at all, the reason that you're hearing my voice in this exact medium, at this exact moment, is because once upon a time, I stole shit from thrifties. Now, I take no pride in having stolen from thrifties, but uh, I don't regret it. I really don't. Because I'm happy with where my journeys led me. And I'm happy with what I've gotten out of this experience. I'm happy with where my life is at this moment. And even having told you that story, I still don't believe that everything happens for a reason. But I do believe that actions have consequences. And I'm tremendously grateful that uh, the consequences that my actions as a 17-year-old had led me to where I am today. And that's going to do it for episode 19 of the Martin Lestrap Show podcast hour. Uh, I want to thank you guys for listening to me. I hope you enjoy the rest of your week. If you have any shopping to do, please do it on Amazon.com. Don't go to Thrifties or Rite Aid or anywhere else and steal. Please don't steal, but if you do, hopefully something positive comes out of it. Uh, but if you got some shopping, do it on Amazon. Please go through the website, martinlestrapshow.com. Click on the banner, and uh, all the shopping you do from there helps the show out. Uh, all the money you spend, Amazon kicks back a few pennies our way, and we get to take that money, reinvest it into the show, and make it as good as we can possibly make it. And that's exactly what we want to do for you. So once again, thank you so much for listening, and until next time, I'll see you on the other side.